Today we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. Now the last time we looked at basically roles and responsibilities, and today we'll hear the last thing that the Apostle Paul writes to Titus about shoring up the church in Crete. And I want to encourage you this morning because this is one of those portions of Scripture. If you walked in here today and you're having troubles with your health or finances or relationships, um, we're really going to get into some of the meat of what God did for us by saving us. And what he didn't, he didn't just save us to leave us to kind of meander through this world. He saved us so that we could have life and that we could have that life more abundantly. And I got to tell you, I can't even wait to start John's gospel because it's going to blow your doors off. There's just so much good stuff in John's gospel. So even whatever age you're at today, um, I think that this is going to minister to you. And you can tell me if it has at the end of service. So starting with verse one, Titus three, He says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, we left off with these responsibilities of the new life in Christ. And here, it's really a reminder of if we are filled with the Spirit, if we are really again born-again believers, that this is what the behavior should look like in, in that new life. In other words, how should we as new creatures in Christ behave in society, behave in everyday life, a lifestyle? What does that look like? And in God's word, if there's repetition, it's something he certainly wants us to pay attention to. So as we went through Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, let's start looking at some of the repetition that we see in his word. And maybe even take out our scorecards and say, do I reflect that? Or is there some work I need to do? Do I need help from his Holy Spirit? You know, is there uh, more of a transformation process that needs to take place in my life? Do I need to grow more? Where am I at? So we'll check that out as well. Now, the first three have strong application to our relationship to government. In other words, civic responsibility. Well, in this instance, contextually, it was the Cretan Christians to the pagan world. So how do we get into society? How do we integrate? How do we react? And the truth is that we should be good citizens, however, not to compromise. And I think that we can easily say that where we live in New Jersey, in the East Coast in 2012, that there are some very uh, strong negative influences in our culture. You know, we're called to be salt and light. Salt has a, a preserving influence uh, in, in meat. That's how they cured the meats. They didn't have refrigeration back then. So can we be salt? Maybe influencing good towards the world and not letting the world influence us because that's not a good thing. So it should be going in one direction. We should be winning them to Christ. So number one is to be subject to rulers and authorities, not rebellious. Rebellion is anarchy. And God is very clear in his scripture that he is not the God of anarchy or disorder. Anarchists eventually want to destroy society. And when this society is destroyed, there's nothing left. Right? So I think that even anarchists would see at the end of their result that it's not a good place to live in. And it's not, a, it's not to have any place among God's people. Number two, to obey. We shouldn't be lawbreakers. Now, we should pay our taxes. Now, I would agree certainly in New Jersey, that between federal, state, local, you're getting, we're getting creamed here. However, we're not to be, 
you know, the government does provide a service. Unfortunately, anything run by men eventually is going to become problematic. So we should be paying our taxes. Now, do I agree that we should write our elected officials? Absolutely. Do we, I agree that peaceful protests may be in order sometimes? Absolutely. Do we, should we be vocal? Absolutely. But we also have to integrate into society. Now, there is, it's interesting because when you look at some of the ideas, you know, as government continues in our country, I think it's going further and further away, regardless of which president is in, of the original founding fathers. Now, they're talking about the whole health care thing, and everyone's kind of curious because it's thousands of pages. Every once in a while, something pops up. You know, the government may require uh, Christian organizations or hospitals to perform abortions or to do things that are against their conscience. So there may be times where you might say, they may say, hey, Joe, everybody has to rotate through the abortion clinics. And at that time, I would say absolutely not. So when it comes into contact with God's law, then we can say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. See, with the Roman Christians, they were being killed in the arenas because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't pay homage to the to pagan Greco-Roman gods, so they were killed. So they disobeyed the government, but it's only in an extreme circumstance like that when the government becomes that corrupt and that debauched. Three, to be ready for every good work. Now, I would suggest that good work should be done not only in the church, but outside of the church. And I guess my question would be, what is our testimony as Calvary Chapel uh, Crossfield in Jamesburg? When we go through town, oh yeah, I've heard of that church. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? We should not be reproachful or disdainful to society. Not maybe even reclusive. We want to win them. I always have an issue with any Christian or pseudo-Christian organization that cloisters themselves, that hides from society. That's not exactly, or that's not at all what the Lord had in mind when he spoke about being Christians. Uh, then it, it brings back images of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. It doesn't, it doesn't help us when we're trying to win the world to Christ to see these organizations do these things. It's very cultish. So be ready for every good work in and out of the church. Now, the next four go from a macrocosm or big world to a microcosm. So now we're looking at more interpersonal relationships as we go through these. Four, to speak evil of no one. And the word speak evil is blasphemeo where we get the word blasphemy from. Again, whether in or out of church, we have better ways to spend our time than just talk about people. There's plenty of evil people out there that we can talk about, but that shouldn't be how we consume our time. And quite frankly, a lot of us were in that group before we got saved. So speak evil of no one, five to be peaceable, six gentle, seven showing humility to all men. Now these are all Christ-like qualities. And the goal, again, is to win the world to salvation. We want to see them saved. Even our enemies, even the person that you really, really dislike or can't stand. And if they're not a believer, imagine if you won that person to Christ. Would they be your enemy anymore? They'd be your brother. You just turned an enemy into a brother. How cool is that? So there's the goal. Not an easy thing to do. But I'll tell you this. My testimony is, before I was a believer, I was out for number one. However, Christians who tried to win me had a few things in common. Number one, they loved me. They gave me attention. They took their time to explain spiritual things to me, and in some cases, they pursued my lost soul. And here I am, standing before you. I'm thankful for all those that didn't give up on me. 
So we need to, especially if we didn't grow up as Christians, we need to look at that, not forget where we came from. That's important. And again, this was new to me. I sometimes maybe looked at them suspiciously because I thought, in my mind, I wouldn't do this for you. I don't even know you. Why would you do this for me? It piqued my curiosity, and I wanted to know more. In a sense, we kill them with kindness. I was killed with kindness, and that won me over. So whether it's Cretan Christians or Calvary Chapel Crossfield Christians, it's the same playbook. For a few thousand years have changed, but the playbook has not. Verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We can look at this as a before and after comparison, but we can certainly maybe wonder why he said this. Well, just a few reasons I threw out it there. Number one is, don't look down on the world, believers. Now, I've seen this. It's, it's an odd phenomenon. When a person comes to Christ, and then they start pointing figures at the world. It's like, hey, you've only been saved six months. What are you doing? You know, it wasn't that long that you were in that camp. Don't be haughty. Don't look down on them. We're to love them. We're not to be cliquish now because we're saved. And, and this is a good thing. Also, maybe to say, this is what you used to do. Hint, hint. This shouldn't be your present lifestyle. Background, a little reminder prior to moving on. So we can look at foolish, disobedient, deceived. Listen, if we don't know the Lord, we are deceived. I used to spout off at parties, and we would talk about the Bible. None of us knew what we were talking about, but we would just throw things out of there. Oh, you, have the, you know, the Bible says this. You ever meet groups like that? They don't know what they're talking about. That was me. I didn't know anything. Right? <laughs> deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. Work, 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 make money so that on the weekend we can serve our lusts and pleasures. That's what life was all about. Eventually that gets empty after a while. Living in malice and envy or jealousy. Jealousy is ugly. Jealousy is one of the most hateful things that you can do. To just look at another person and, and really have negative feelings about them because you think that they're better looking than you or smarter or they have more than you. And jealousy causes, it's a lot of the uh, precipitation to crimes. The crimes out of jealousy. Hateful and hating one another. Now you may say, Pastor Joe, you know, even as a non-believer, I'm not a hateful person. Okay? However, if you don't know the Lord, your primary motivation is for you. It was for me. So in a sense, if we're always looking out for number one, well, I'm not going to do anything for you because you haven't done anything for me. Or I think I might make friends with that person because I think somewhere in the future they can pay me back. Oh, we're just loving ourselves. We're not loving anyone else. And when push comes to shove and there's dire circumstances, we're going to make sure number one is taken care of. So hateful and hating. We don't really know how to love unless we have God guiding us. We have the Holy Spirit residing us for him to teach us because God is love. If we're estranged from God, then how can we understand love? It's simple logic. So if there's no love, then there's hate. And it's a hard thing to grasp. Man is not basically good. Man is basically a sinner. Now, this is a contrast to peaceable, gentle, showing humility, not speaking evil. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are complete, diametrically opposed to each other, these groups of, of characteristics. And again, we have to stop and ask ourselves, which group do I fit into? 
take out my spiritual scorecard. What is my life comprised of? Well, how does it rate? Maybe I need to go and pray about that and ask the Lord to help me with some of these issues. Verse 4. But when the kindness, this is key, this is a real chunk of meat here that I want to throw at you. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. God's love and kindness to us in the person of Jesus Christ And our receiving of that made the difference in our lives. And most eventually respond to love and kindness. Even if the person that you're witnessing to and you're loving, they're not letting up. They're not showing their cards. It's a good poker face. That love and kindness is doing something. They either have to give into it or they have to dig their heels in and resist it. Because that's how powerful love is. What were we saved from? Judgment. As sinners, that's what we deserve judgment we've offended god however he has changed things so that we could be reconciled to him it's because he first loved us is why we love him the scripture says again not by anything we did but now but is a disassociative conjunction it brings the other part of the sentence together but it disassociates itself it's not by anything that we did it's not by our good works but Somebody says, I love you, but, you know, okay, what's, where's the other shoe going? The but here tells us that it's according to his mercy, not according to good works. Don't you understand that is an insult to God when God says, I have this perfect plan for you. I love you. I'm going to send my son to die for your sins. You know, all those awful things you could not pay for, but I'm going to fix the problem. I love you. And this is the way, this is 100%. It's very insulting if we say to God, I don't know if it's 100%, Lord. I'm going to say it's about 97%, and it's a small amount, but I think in 3% of what I can do, it's going to be me and you. We're going to have, it's going to be a great team. This is going to work out beautiful. When we try to get saved by good works, that's what we're doing. God, let me help you. You are God, and 97%, Lord, that's great. I'm only talking 3% here. This isn't a bargaining chip. This is God we're speaking of, his perfect atoning work on the cross is what saves us not good works well the church must be involved in your salvation no it mustn't we're just here to help show you the way but it's between you and god to have a beautiful fruitful relationship no matter where you are in life no matter what stage you're at a lot of you're shaking your heads because you you know it no matter how many years go by you still have that relationship with him So number one, what did he do? He saved us through the washing of regeneration. In other words, through the bathing, through the baptism that brings spiritual birth. Now, how does this happen? First, it starts with his blood. From where we're standing in time, 2,000 years ago, he died for our sins. Imagine that, knowing 2,000 years later that we would be born and that he loves us. And and he he didn't miss any trick. 
He dotted his I's and crossed his T's. Everything was perfect. So the, by the blood first, and then also by his word, by preaching, by hearing the things of God, by hearing his love story, it starts to change us. And baptism is a picture of this washing of regeneration. It isn't the physical baptism. We, we baptized about nine people last Sunday. That didn't change them spiritually, and they were already born again, and now they wanted to be baptized. There's, a, there's an emblem there. There's a, uh, um, something that you want to show to the world. Let me read this to you. 1 John 1, 7, one verse. It says, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That little three-letter word is a powerful word. All sin. Now, there are some today that are still punishing themselves. And, and I go through various forms of um, you know, counseling, and people come into my office, and they're still punishing themselves. They're still treating themselves like garbage. And you know what? You don't have to do that to yourself because the blood of Jesus covers and cleanses you from all sin. And so far, in seven years of being a pastor, no one has come into my office and thrown up on me and told me something that was so terrible that I had to run screaming out of my office. It hasn't happened yet. Or that I raised an eyebrow. Pastor Joe, I was a prostitute. Pastor Joe, I didn't feed my elderly mother or father and they passed away and I'm carrying this guilt. Pastor Joe, my kids were taken away from me. Pastor Joe, I knew a guy that murdered somebody with his bare hands. Now, I'm not minimizing that, but I am saying that Jesus Christ paid for those sins. You have something worse? Do you have something worse than the apostle Paul did before he became the apostle, consenting to the death of so many Christians? The blood, I just want to say that again, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I want to encourage you with that this morning. Stop punishing yourself. Stop treating yourself like that. You don't have to do that. And two, he says the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I, I enjoy going into the Greek because it's a very picturesque language. The word for renewing actually means renovation. Now, I will tell you that when my wife and I were starting out in life, and we were looking to buy a house. We had some money saved up, but we couldn't afford you know, anything substantial. So we, in, in the town that we were in, um, she actually was driving around, and she believes that the Lord led her to this house. And she comes home, and she said, I think I found a house for us. She said, but you're going to have to be humble. <laughs> Boy, she wasn't kidding. <laughs> it was a real fixer-upper. But the word here for renovation is... I don't care what you think of yourself. Before you're saved, your spiritual house is a mess. It's out of order. I had my, my kitchen, the refrigerator, if I didn't do something with that floor, it would have fallen through to the room downstairs. We're a mess. But the Holy Spirit comes in, and he's the master plumber. He's the master carpenter. He's the master electrician. He's the engineer. He's all those things, and he fixes the house. And he makes it look beautiful and inhabitable. See, we're to be renovated and fixed up by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does some good work, I got to tell you. The Holy Spirit, I would argue, is the most misunderstood person of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. People attribute weird things to the Holy Spirit. Wait till we get into John's Gospel. This is going to blow your doors off in this understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a huge role in our lives and in the health of the church, right? So here's the order. For us, born in or living in this time era, 
Christ died on the cross first. Where's my math people? Rose, my, my math people, timelines, okay? Let's look at this chronologically. The cross came first, and then we were born. I don't think any of you were older than 1,900 years or so. No, so we're good. So the cross, then we're born physically, but we're estranged from God. We're dead spiritually. Then the word comes in, the Bible, preaching, teaching, someone sharing with you about the love of God. And what that starts to do is it starts to stimulate, not your body. This is the part that's not going to come with us. It's going to stimulate your spirit and your mind. Now, when we do uh, go to be with the Lord, all the bad things that we carry in our minds are going to be shed. I believe that. Revelation is clear. No more crying. No more sadness. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. So we're renewing of our mind that we should be starting now and a renewing of our spirit. You, you with me so far? And then respond, receive, and restore. We respond to God's love. We receive him as, the whole, as, as our Lord and Savior, and we're restored by the renovation work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And that is what a born-again Christian is all about. Now, some of you may have come in here and said, oh, are you one of those born-agains? This is what happens in the world. Um, a certain church, a certain group, they call themselves born-again Christians. They do weird stuff. They embezzle. They steal money. Go to jail, and um, this is the, the stain of the term. But the term came from Jesus himself. We've stained it. He didn't. Born again of the Spirit. Okay? Verse 6. The Holy Spirit is poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ. In other words, as much as we want. We don't have to live a life of powerlessness. We don't have to live a life of no victory. We don't have to live a life of mediocrity. Jesus said, I have come to give them life and that life abundantly. Oh, that's great, Pastor Joe. I can't wait to go to heaven and grab a harp and, and hang around on a cloud for a while. It's not what he's speaking about. He's also speaking about a, an abundant life here. He hasn't come to leave us orphans, not in the afterlife and not here. That's why he said, when I go, it's good that I go, Jesus says. Disciples are like, well, that's not good. No, it is good, guys, because when I go, then I give you the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to take care of you while I'm preparing your, your place in heaven. It was all good news this morning. So whatever you came in here with, you starting to feel a little bit better? Good, maybe? Well, we're not done yet. He wants so much better for us, but you know what? A lot of us are deceived. Satan deceives us into thinking, well, gee, the Holy Spirit, I'm born again, part of God resides in me. But I don't feel different. And sometimes when I wake up, I'm really tired and grumpy. And sometimes, you know, I get angry and I get bitter. And, and I'm not forgiving that person. Holy Spirit is still there. What are you going to do about it? Let me just give you an analogy. That, like the analogy of the poor widow whose husband died and all his things were in a certain room. And there was this big briefcase filled with all this paper stuff that she didn't know what it was about. And she, every day she ate potato soup because she was starving and she was hungry and she was poor. Until one day someone came to her house and they, she allowed them into the room and he opened up the suitcase and he said, wow, this is filled with apple stocks or whatever, you know. And he's, woman, dear woman, you are a rich woman. This is worth millions of dollars. But I never knew. Many Christians are going through life with the power of the Holy Spirit and they don't know. 
And I really believe when we get through John's gospel, you're going to have a better understanding and it's going to transform your life. And you work in concert with God to make you God successful in life. And you'll still go. I'm not promising you that you're not going to go through the highs and lows of life. But it's going to be different. And it's going to be awesome. So take that to heart. The problem is that we're so used to living in the natural that we forget that we, we're, we're also spiritual, we, we're re revived spiritually. And, and some of us just go through life living in the natural. Everything is based on touch, sight, you know, smell, hearing. And we don't realize that the power of God is just at our fingertips. Someone said that you can have as much of the Holy Spirit as you ask for, but a lot of us don't ask. Jesus even said, he didn't give us an eternal wish list, but when he spoke about prayer and the things that we would be given, he said, you can ask for as much of the Holy Spirit and you will receive what you ask for. Just keep that in mind. Verse 7, he says, we are not only justified, we're justified here. Now, the word justified is, means declared righteous. Let's just take this to natural terms for a minute. Let's do a little parable here. If you uh, committed a heinous crime and you were on death row, you're hoping, you know, you're asking your lawyers to plead with the governor. You want him to sign with a stroke of a pen a pardon. You want him to show you clemency. You don't want to go to the chair. So justified means to be declared righteous. Because of what Jesus did, his sacrifice, and us believing in him, we don't need a stroke of a governor's pen. We don't need him to call the penal institution or the corrections facility. We have God saying, I declare you righteous. And we don't like to hear from our parents because I said so, but it's because he said so. Because he said so. Because this, he provided Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and we've been declared righteous. But I don't feel righteous, I just, I, I sin. We take on his nature, and he took our nature at the cross. And he paid for those sins. Hard to believe, but it's true. In addition, in addition, we didn't get released from the prison, and we're out there looking for a job as an ex-con now, and it's hard. What happens is we're released, and then God says, come over here. Here's my house. Come in with me. From this day forward, you are my son, God declares. In John 1.12, he says that we become children of God. We become his heirs. Wow. So he declares us righteous and then brings us into his family, and we can call him Abba, Father, Daddy. I mean, it just, I think I don't even completely understand it. I'm preaching it. And I don't completely understand, but one day I will. I will shed this body of death and sin, and I will be just enjoying it for all of eternity. I believe it. Verse 8, he says, this is a faithful saying, and it must be affirmed constantly. Understand that this portion is we, we get to know, we, we understand what our position is, but now we get to understand what our purpose is. And good works, he says, this is a short chapter. Was it 15 verses? Three times he speaks about good works. Now, good works don't save, but they are evidence. They are evidence that the Lord is in us, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Good works. James says that faith without works is dead. If doing good works is a chore, then we need to check our hearts. Because this is what Paul does. He says, you're declared righteous. You're a child of God. You're an heir. You've been forgiven for everything. You shouldn't treat yourself like that. I love you. I'm preparing a place for you. And then he says, 
because of that, because of what we just drank in for the last 10 minutes, he says, because of that, we should exude Christ. We should want to do good works because it pleases our Father in heaven, not because it saves us, not because it saves us. We should naturally want to do this as born-again believers. Verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. This is a picture of striving for purity in the church. Now, as a pastor, I never want to preach something, and I don't explain it, and a person gets the wrong impression. So I'm going to explain what I mean about purity. It doesn't mean perfection. Starting with me, there's nobody in this church who's perfect. That's why we're here assembling, to learn about God and how we can grow and mature in our spirit. This purity means that this is a safe place to worship. It means that we can take our trapezius muscles and our supraspinatus and all those muscles up here and we walk into the church, we relax, you know? Take the garbage that you brought in here and leave it outside. Right now, throw it out the window. Just don't break the glass. <laughs> leave it at outside. Leave it at the foot of the cross. Go home today and give it up. Take that, that backpack of junk that you're carrying around, even as a believer, and lay it at his feet. He died so that you could have peace, so that you could take his burden and his yoke. Right? We saw that in uh, Matthew 11. So when we come into the church, there's an environment of, of peace, of receiving his word, of being with other believers, of fellowship, of worship. And it's just, it's just great. It just recharges us. It energizes us to go forward and to go back into the world. It's like getting your batteries charged up again. And contextual to Titus's time, there were certain issues, but he says, avoid the following. Number one, foolish disputes. Okay, the Greek word for foolish is moros. Can you guess what word we get in the English? <laughs> okay, so you're all awake. That's good. Yeah, I love to, I look at this stuff. I'm like, wow, that's pretty neat. Basically, he's saying moronic searching. Our desire as believers is to grow, is to mature, is to get to know more about God and his word, is to understand the love that he has for us. However, starting back then and even today, People get caught up in sidebars, in mysticism, in speculations, in things that really are not important. Our focus needs to be on the goodness of God and him growing us, okay? Two, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law. Now, back then, again, there were uh, contextual issues. There were uh, the legalists, the Judaizers. We don't really have it here today. However, I talked to uh, one of the gentlemen who actually spoke here at our pulpit uh, the Christian and Jewish Foundation, Peter Parkas, and he took me aside and he said, there's a lot of Judaizing going on in the Messianic Jewish movement. And he said, Joe, we're fighting the good fight. We're fighting against it. So that's a contextual issue for Titus. Maybe it's a, a contextual issue today for Jewish believers. But we have different issues. I'll give you an example. There's a doctrine called, in hardcore, um, strong, extreme Calvinism called double predestination. Now, let me just say this beforehand that it's not true. However, let me explain to you what the doctrine is. The doctrine is that supposedly God 
before foundation of the world, you know, he has the souls, he has the people, and he's going to make a very small minority of those who are his elect, and they're going to be saved. And no matter what they do, they're saved. They're on the good list, the A-list. Then everybody else in the world, the masses are um, of the damned. God just makes them so he can send them to hell, basically. Again, this is not true, but it's taught in some circles of Christianity, unfortunately. And you ask your friends who believe in this, explain that doctrine to me. You can very easily find it on, online. There's a big problem with that uh, because those of the damned can't receive the Lord. They can read his word all they want and can never be regenerated to faith because God doesn't want them to. That's a little secret within that movement that they don't really like to talk about that much. If it was true and it's not, it would be unedifying to speak about. In some circles today, it's spoken about. And I know some that talk about that. I'm like, first of all, why would you even speculate this weird doctrine that was made up by a man? And second of all, it's very hurtful, and it's unedifying, and it's confusing. And many come out of that movement not even knowing if they're saved. And, and, and you know, they, they, get, they get confused about it. But it's unprofitable, and it's useless. There are certain things that just shouldn't happen inside of a church. Verse 10 through 11, what happens here is a person becomes divisive and it, it becomes harmful to the church. He says, reject the divisive man or woman after the first and second admonition. Let them go. Now, I have to explain what these things mean to you because taken out of context, oh, is that church disciplined? Does that mean if I do something wrong, I'm going to be booted out? No, that's not what it means. I'll give you another example. Uh, the word I'm trying to think. The word divisive is the Greek word heretikos, which is where we get the word heretic from. Some of you know that there was a, a pastor of Mars Hill. His name was Rob Bell, and he's a universalist. And I'm probably giving him more airtime than he deserves. But he wrote a book called Love Wins. Now, this book basically says that you don't really need the cross. You don't need Jesus. Eventually, everybody goes to heaven anyway. So you got the double predestination crowd on one side that are extreme in that direction. And then you have the universalists on the other extreme Rob Bell and his ilk preaching this stuff, which is very damnable because it gives people a false sense of security, a false footing. Well, I can live like the world. I could, I could be as debauched as I want, but when I die, God's going to just bring me to heaven anyway. It doesn't work like that. Now, I, I saw him on an interview, and it's great because uh, the media interviews them, and they know nothing about Greek, and I watched him twist them. I watched him dupe them. And he said, well, other pastors are calling me a heretic. He goes, do you know in the Greek, that word means able to choose? Yeah, that's, well, he goes, I'm just choosing. What he did was he took that word out of context. The word really means to be a schismatic, to, to choose wrong or to choose to divide. And that's the part that he didn't bring up. So this is what happens. This type of heresy can get into the church and cause instability. And that's not what we want. He says this, knowing the person is the following. Number one, he says warped. A person who's warped, it starts in the mind. It's a mindset. And it settles in there all comfortably. The next thing we move to in this scripture is that he says the person is sinning. We all sin, don't we? This is a present tense Greek verb. It means that it's just a lifestyle of sin. The person makes no effort for purity and holiness. They just, this is what they do every day. This is what characterizes their life. Number three, the person then, watch the, the last step, the end result is to be self-condemned. Now, grant this, nobody did it to them, they did it to themselves. Okay? Pharaoh hardened his heart so many times that God just left him in that state. 
Pharaoh did it to himself. Here's a plague. Oh, I hate this plague. You know, okay, Moses, you guys can go. Okay, looks like the coast is clear. The plague is gone. Nope, come back. You know, I'm going to get my army. You're going to be slaves again. God sends another plague. Oh, this is a terrible plague. Okay, you can go. Coast is clear after a while. The frogs are gone. Okay, come on. Come on back. This goes on like 10 times. And God eventually says, you know what? Enough is enough. And he made him a vessel of dishonor. But it was Pharaoh's choice. He self-condemned himself. Now, some may say, hey, man, where's the love in response to church discipline? But the love is for the rest of the flock that doesn't want to be poisoned. That's what the love is for. With the vision comes distraction, then detraction, and ultimately destruction. And I've seen it happen. And it, it's, it tears a church apart. Some here have even told me some pretty much horror stories about a place that you came from. And that kind of very thing happened in, in that church. And either the pastor wasn't strong enough to deal with it, or he was part of the problem. Okay? Why does this need to be dealt with? Let's go back to the reasons why God says what he says in his word. Number one, because word gets around in the community. And a divided church will eventually become ineffective in winning the loss to Christ. If we have a reputation in Jamesburg... That we're, and every, every Sunday we have new people coming in, so it must be a good reputation. Before service, everybody's greeting each other. But if we had a reputation in Jamesburg that we were all divided, that there are some groups that sat in the corner back there, and there's some groups that sat up here, and never the twain shall meet. They don't speak to each other, and there's, there's fighting and backbiting. You think anyone from the world is going to want to come here? No. They want to come here because they're tired of their life. They're tired of trying to do it themselves. They're tired of falling down all the time, and they're looking for something different. And when they come in here and they're greeted, and people smile at them and ask them what their name is and introduce them to people, that is what wins the world to Christ. So it isn't about us. This whole church discipline thing, it's not about me personally. It's about how I fit in to the body of Christ and how he uses me to bring more people into the fold. It's a big tent. You've heard that for political parties. Hey, we have a big tent. Let me tell you something. God's tent is the biggest tent. He's got plenty of room in heaven. He's not going to be caught off guard if, if the number of saved souls reaches a trillion. Oh, what are we going to do, Jesus? We're going to have to knock down the, the walls here and, and call the permit office. No. His heaven is big enough for everyone to fit into. He is not caught off guard. Verse 12. And when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be di diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. He says, maintain good works. Okay, this is the third time we're seeing this. In other words, maintain, synonym, could be have a lifestyle of good works. It should be part of who we are. Earlier, he spoke about a lifestyle of sin. Now he's speaking about a lifestyle of good works. Just like when we were saved, you know, we sinned. And we didn't think much about it because we didn't know God. Now we do good works. We, we are kind to people. We, we show the love of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's not an effort. It's just who we are. Difference in lifestyles. The goal is not to be unfruitful or barren spiritually. Good works is evidence that Christ is working in us and he's changed us. Let's wrap this up. 
in a few um, understandable blocks. Number one, if we've been studying the Bible long enough, we know that these letters have the same theme, no matter what we go through, the old life and the new life. And then many ask, especially as new believers, now what? What do I do now? Well, that's a good question. And God's uh, word guides you through those, that answer. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the spiritual gifts. You know, Proverbs 18 says that the wise man or the foolish man isolates himself and rages against all wise judgment. As a born-again believer now, God gives us spiritual gifts, spiritual things that we didn't have before. As a born-again believer, we have these abilities now. It's amazing. And I've seen them at work, various in, in various types of people. And we get plugged into a church, a body of believers, where we employ these gifts, where we use them to God's glory. We do what we were designed to do. God ushers us into a God-successful future. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we hinder our own futures. Sometimes God wants to do a great work in us, and we get in the way. Right? And unfortunately, that, that happens. And the worst thing that we can do as born-again believers is now try to live like the world again. That's a real huge impediment, and that's going to cause confusion and stress in our lives. Now, when we go into John's gospel, I'm going to say that if John's gospel, by the time we're finished, I think it's 21 chapters, if we're not revitalized, if something hasn't changed about us, we're not paying attention because God's word is that powerful. And I will say this, that we're really going to get into an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how he fits into our life and how he helps us on our journey of life. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to look at faith under fire. We're going to look at joy in the midst of trials. We're going to look at hope in a hopeless world and love notwithstanding. Let's pray.